This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Dr. and State Senator Josh Green, Democratic nominee for Hawaii Lieutenant Governor. Thanks for coming on and congrats on winning your primary. Thank you. It's an honor to participate, Jordan. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. We're glad to have you. So you were elected separately from your now running mate, the incumbent Democratic governor. How does that system work? Why do you do the separate elections? And what is your relationship with the governor? Yes. uh, So first of all, thank you very much for the question. That's uh, one of the most pressing questions on people's minds. Uh, We separately elect our LG and governor in Hawaii. Uh, in many ways to give us an opportunity for more diversity. We also have a neighbor island and Oahu uh, based uh, government. So Oahu has about 60 to 70 percent of the population of the whole state and sometimes this gives an opportunity for a neighbor island person like myself to get elected. I've, I've been the senator for Kona for a long time. So I don't know it's like eight to ten other states in the in the country I think do it this way. So it's quite interesting. It can cut both ways because you have to always hope that better angels will prevail and that the governor and lieutenant governor will be uh, good allies and work well together and so on. In our case, I know it will be, the, will be true because I served with Governor Ige for six years as a senator. We're both senators and so we got along very well. We were allies. So that's an exciting thing. Uh, the next part though is of course what's the import of the lieutenant governor in general? Uh, what's the value of the position? It can range from uh, a position that the governor does not use very vibrantly to an extremely critical, important, critically important position uh, for statewide responsibility. Uh, in my case, I have high expectations that I will be completely integrated with my governor. Uh, he's already asked me to be at every cabinet meeting. I've asked to be the central point person on uh, chronic homeless solutions for our state, which is our greatest challenge, very likely, uh, from everyone's perspective. We just know that the last relationship did not work well between the governor and lieutenant governor. They didn't get on the same page, and people want more in our state. They want uh, me as a physician to be able to work on health and human service issues from a place of expertise. And uh, Governor Ige David is a, uh, you know, he's been an ally, and he's he's relied on me in that capacity before. I'm the chairperson right now of the Human Services Committee, which takes care of all of our Medicaid safety net and a lot of our health care uh, needs in the state. So that's how we'll use Lieutenant Governor. And I'm, I'm very deeply embedded in everything health related. So that's what it looks like I'll do. So in your state, interestingly, the Lieutenant Governor also serves as Secretary of State. Could you tell us a little more about that? Yes, I can. Uh, Secretary of State role is the one formal role that Lieutenant Governor uh, has in our state. That means uh, overseeing elections, overseeing official documentation, which can often be quite important, not because of uh, the bureaucracy so much, but because we have relationships with a lot of other countries being out here in the Pacific. We deal uh, with all of the Pacific region, Japan, China. We have 
lots and lots of needs in that space. Uh, we have some, of course, mundane needs, like every state needs to handle certain things, which our lieutenant governor's uh, office handles. But it's kind of a, um, it's an important uh, annex in some ways to the governor's office. And then the way our constitution reads is the lieutenant governor is responsible for anything additional that the governor uh, may, uh, he or she may put on the lieutenant governor. And finally, whatever else I come up with, kind of, to be blunt. So uh, we've had, you know, intense discussions already uh, about me continuing my efforts as that I've been a, I've been a senator for 10 years and I was a representative for four uh, on major issues like health care for all. I'm a big single payer advocate or universal access to housing as a human right, looking through the lens of uh, this challenge as a chronic health condition, homelessness. These are the kind of big things that I've been focused on, and I'm excited to do more of that as lieutenant governor if I'm picked. So could you tell us a bit more about your work in the Senate? What were your major achievements? What difficulties did you run into? Uh, as a senator, I feel very proud to have worked on issues like universal coverage for children with autism. Uh, we didn't have that coverage for our, our keiki. Keiki is the, the word we use for kids here in Hawaii, like many other states did. So now our kids who are on the autism spectrum get coverage. I was the one who wrote the bill to have universal coverage for ch all children. So we closed the gaps that had been created over the years by less effective national administrations. And we have a very robust safety net, but I wanted to expand and did expand that in partnership with both our department. Department of Human Services and our insurers. So those are the kind of achievements that I worked on. I was also very focused on equality for healthcare access. We didn't have a mandate uh, or even a position that guaranteed women who were victims of sexual assault access to care. And I'm an emergency room physician for the other part of my life, uh, and I still work full time. So I saw firsthand that hospitals didn't have to provide care if someone had been sexually assaulted. And that was, of course, an abomination in my mind. So I was able to change that law based on personal experience. So those are the kind of things that I work on and have worked on. I'm also very focused on improving our education system and trying to support teachers. Some of the barriers, though, I run into are the same barriers that I think state legislators probably run into all over the place, which is it's difficult to reach consensus. There can be partisanship, although we don't really have much of a partisan conundrum in our state because there's actually no Republicans in our Senate and only five out of 51 of the, the uh, representatives are Republicans. And I'm not being critical of Republicans per se, it's just that we have our own problems. We have internal fights in the Democratic Party that other states may not have, but we don't have a partisan divide in Hawaii because we're a, a super blue state. So what kind of divides are there in the Democratic Party? In Hawaii, there is an ideological divide. Uh, there is a more conservative faction in Hawaii, a uh, socially conservative faction that didn't, for instance, support gender rights, didn't support uh, same-sex marriage or first civil unions and same-sex marriage, that didn't support uh, protections against housing discrimination. And some of that was based on religious sentiment. So there was a divide there. There was also a divide, and we can unpack that more as we go. There was also a divide uh, based on more conservative uh, versus uh, liberal economic ideology. And so some people were just less willing to go all in on some of what 
national progressives like myself would believe in, like going to a single payer model, which I think we are well suited for in Hawaii. So, uh, so you have different different factions like that, and then we also have geographic challenges because, uh, like I mentioned earlier, with seventy percent of the population being from Oahu, that that means that seventy percent of the elected officials come from Oahu and thirty percent from the neighbor islands, meaning Big Island, Maui, Kauai, Lanai, so Molokai. So, uh, because of that, you know, whenever you're a local representative, you fight for your local priorities and. The Oahu guys who are more of an urban setting, more, I won't say completely because there is a rural part of, of Oahu, but the Honolulu-based uh, elected officials are like urban-type uh, elected officials. They focus on those issues, whereas the rural communities, like rural communities all across our country, have different challenges. For instance, I, I came to Hawaii with the National Health Corps, which sent me to the most rural spot, really in some ways on the planet, which was the southern tip of the Big Island of Hawaii, where there was not another hospital for basically 60 miles. And we had no access to so many services like drug treatment, alcohol treatment, um, behavioral health treatment. And I knew and learned in those four years from 2000 to 2004 what it meant to live in a very rural, isolated place on a separate island from the main population. So I had a different agenda for my community than, say, someone who represented downtown Honolulu, where there's a lot of it's like a metropolitan area. There's banks and restaurants and international commerce and travel. So there are divides and differences. And so what could you do as lieutenant governor to support a progressive agenda? Well, I can be a big mouth for one thing, which I am. You know, I am very vocal in general. I'll be the only physician in the country that's a lieutenant governor, I believe. I hope that people will see me as a both a a strong advocate here for a progressive agenda in Hawaii, which we always can use a little bit more progressive oomph because we sometimes get bogged down in Hawaii in more uh, conservative democratic politics, uh, surprisingly. But nationally, as the only doc, I will speak to, uh, for instance, healthcare as a human right. I will speak to uh, universal equality when it comes to health human services and all treatment. We're not vulnerable in Hawaii to be picked off by the lunacy that we call the Trump administration here. And so we don't worry so much about that. So I can be quite outspoken and use my area of expertise, which is medicine, to fight for universal health care from, like I said earlier, an experiential position where I know that having loan forgiveness and universal access to insurance and care is just healthier. Hawaii is always the healthiest state in the country. I think maybe 10 out of the last 12 years, we were number one, two years, we were number two. And we've proven that having preventive care, having virtually universal health care coverage makes a difference in health. And so I'll speak uh, kind of truth to power on that. I also see a lot of people that are affected by addiction, for instance. And I think addiction treatment should be considered primary care. Primary care should be universal without a doubt. Even um, conservative health pundits will tend to agree that primary care is a good investment. It only represents about 11% of the healthcare dollar and it, it reaps incredible rewards for health and savings. So. These are the kind of things that I can be outspoken about with a little bit of extra gray matter on that topic because I live that life. I've spent years training in that area and um, I hope to be expert not just for Hawaii but for the mainlanders as well. So I always try to make sure that Hawaii can set a decent example. We don't always succeed but we have done better than the rest of the country on things like uh, universal health care coverage, dating all the way back to the early 70s when we 
achieved essentially universal coverage with our 1974 Prepaid Health Act. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. You don't hear often politicians saying that housing is a human right. I'm curious as to what other things you believe are human rights that should be public goods. Uh, Thank you for asking that question. Uh, Well, I think all politicians should say that housing is a human right, as should, uh, and I mean conservative or liberal politicians, because if you can't house people in society, number one, you have catastrophic social consequences. Their kids don't get educated and economically we see disasters left and right. So it should, be a, it should be a societal right and a human right because no one should be forced to live out in the elements. I also think healthcare is a human right. It's a civic duty for society to actually make sure the essentials are there in my mind. Uh, we should have a social contract with people and I'm not talking about just social programs and giveaways. I'm saying everyone should have access to decent healthcare so that A, they can stay healthy, and B, that the health of society and its economy doesn't get crushed when they have a $2 million bill for unnecessary health uh, services that we could have prevented. I think nutrition should also be, you know, adequate nutrition should be a human right, which is why if we have to provide uh, SNAP benefits or, you know, uh, support benefits for people to get fresh vegetables and fruit and so on, it should be available, which we're doing in Hawaii. It prevents chronic disease, which again saves us on our health dollar. So these are the kind of rights. And then finally, public education. It's, that's a little more difficult to quantify because it's not like just doing a housing first program and having a roof over somebody's head. To, to have an adequate public school, you have to support your, your teachers. And that means a couple things. Either we have to have debt-free college. In other words, debt-free so that they can go and be teachers because they're not going to have the same kind of wage perhaps as a high-powered attorney or a CEO. Uh, but also really good public education where every teacher, every teacher is fully trained and capable of, and my kids are in public school, capable of getting those kids to whatever opportunity they want, whether it's a trade or a college degree themselves. So I think if you put those foundational human rights, so to speak, these are societal rights into place, states do better, they become more attractive to people to come live in, and Honestly, we see economic growth and opportunity for people because more education, more health and safety just makes for healthier people. And I'm kind of a health nut in that way. And I'm talking from a policy standpoint. 
So do you believe that internet access should also be a right? Uh, that's a pretty good question. Nowadays, I would have to start saying yes. So you mentioned earlier that you are not encumbered by the Trump administration. I'm curious as to what you could do as Lieutenant Governor and Secretary of State to oppose the Trump agenda. Some of the things we can do is we can just invest and buffer against them appropriately. For instance, we can reinforce our safety net, our Medicaid program, so that no matter what cuts come down the line, we prioritize that over other expenditures. So we're able to continue to have our safety net in place. We have a unique situation in that we um, are uh, a major host to the military because it's necessary in Hawaii to have a significant presence, and some do debate this, but a significant presence for the Pacific region. In times that are more tense, whether it's with North Korea or, or China, the federal government has felt for a long time that they wanted to have a significant presence here in Hawaii, as you know, dating back many decades. So we have a relationship with the federal government that has to be uh, collegial, and the feds need Hawaii just like Hawaii. We often need the federal government for resources, so we can strike a balance. We sometimes go our own way on large issues, and sometimes we're in partnership. We're in partnership right now, for instance, to build a uh, large public transportation system, the rail. Uh, it's highly debated here, but the federal government's putting a pretty significant percentage of support into that to match a lot of our tax dollars. On the flip side, we were a super expansion of Obamacare. Obama, of course, hailing in part from Hawaii, although also Illinois. Uh, President Obama found a serious ally in Hawaii when we talked about expanding Medicaid to match all the needs of a people. So we can set an example and lead that way, and then people can look at our, our results and see if they believe in them. For instance, we have some of the lowest rates of cardiovascular disease because we insure everybody, because people get primary care and prevention, and therefore we also have the lowest cost per capita of Medicare in the country, about $6,000 per person per year, as compared, say, to Massachusetts, which is $15,000 per person per year. I would say most people in the federal government, even if they happen to be very conservatives from the Trump administration would prefer to spend $6,000 per senior per year rather than $15,000 per senior per year on health care. So obviously that's a much more complicated equation that we could unpack, but we do a lot of things very well here. And we fall short in other places, but we tend to be an environmentalist state. There are national mon monuments that are environmentally based that we support here in Hawaii that deal with the feds. Uh, and over time, I think a lot of these states' rights, quote-unquote, battles are going to get fought out state by state. So Hawaii can choose to either be one of the states that's going to push the federal government towards more progressive policies, say being pro-choice, perhaps legalization of, of marijuana or medical marijuana at the very least, which we do, we do already have in statute in Hawaii, and universal health care. So I'm going to try to be a leader on all of those issues, which I just mentioned, and then some. A lot of times I think it's just uh, personal interactions and the power of um, individual capacity once you see someone elected to, to the executive branch. And I will, I will tend to try to make my case whether it's to liberal progressive groups or even the ultra conservative groups. I just take a different tack and I usually talk about economics with those guys.
So there's a lot I'd like to cover there. First, in regards to marijuana, do you support expunging the records of people charged on marijuana offenses? I haven't heard the question asked that way before, but the answer would tend to be yes. I think that people should not have to bear the cross of a conviction if it wasn't harming anyone else. And I really don't like the idea of putting people in prison for a personal choice, if that's to use marijuana in their life, especially since I feel strongly that marijuana is a good uh, answer to chronic pain and anxiety. We're facing, like the rest of the country, an opioid epidemic, and I think that we certainly shouldn't punish anybody like having something on their record because um, they had a marijuana offense. And you mentioned universal healthcare. Could you tell us a little more about the system you have in place right now and why you support single payer? Yes. So we approximate single payer in some ways in Hawaii already. We have a mandate, an employer mandate, so that anyone who works half time or more gets health insurance covered by their employer. And we have almost no unemployment in Hawaii, so therefore we have universal coverage. Some people fall through the cracks, of course, and we've had to fill in those cracks with Medicaid and other programs. Uh, but that's how we do it. We also have a very seriously unionized state that's got a great benefit, and our Medicaid program is very robust. Uh, 362,000 people out of 1.4 million people, it's exactly a quarter, are on Medicaid because we have some economic inequities in Hawaii. And that means we cover all those individuals. So we already are, in piecemeal fashion, are approximating universal coverage. What we should do, however, is streamline it and go to, to a modified single-payer system where we still could have insurers, but that no one is uninsured and we have a universal uh, way to pay in and pay out. Because right now the medical community suffers greatly because they are just very frustrated by the bureaucracy of healthcare. It's very expensive. Even though our overhead is lower than on the mainland, it's still high and it's still a, it's still a time burden. So we could achieve universal health care by streamlining our program uh, and other, other states could follow suit. I think though that having a single-payer program where people at the very least are allowed to buy into uh, Medicaid or Medicare depending on how much you want to spend, first at age 55 at one cost price point and before that at a different price point makes a lot of sense. There might still be some administrative uh, needs from the insurance universe, but the profit motives would go out the window quite quickly and everyone would receive access to the same amount of coverage. I say modified single payer because I'm not going to tell people they can't buy additional coverage if they'd like to. Uh, that's kind of the spirit of capitalism and how people want to spend their extra money. But I do think everyone should get the essentials and basics, and that's the system I would build if I were in that, that policy space right off the bat. And would you say that you do support capitalism? I am a capitalist, there's no question. Uh, but in health markets, it's not a free exchange of resource uh, for money. It's very time and uh, life sensitive. A free market in healthcare is different than a free market in restaurants or building out products, you know, manufacture industry and so on. It doesn't have the same kind of predictable economics associated with it, and it makes it very difficult for people to plan for. That's why universal healthcare coverage or insurance is the is the likely right right road to take. And what are your thoughts on the recent successes of democratic socialists in elections? I think the party has moved a bit to the left as a reaction to extreme excess in corporate gains and corporate profits, which I have a problem with just like my friends who are 
democratic socialists. I think that it's touched a nerve. I think that we're all aware that corporate largesse has gone too far. And of course, corporations have completely purchased uh, the federal government now. And Trump's example of putting almost exclusively billionaires on his cabinet has disgusted many of us. And so right now, Bernie was terrific in my mind, and democratic socialists are able to connect better with people who are younger, thoughtful, politically engaged than ever before. Uh, but it will be very interesting to see if we can have balance. For instance, after Hillary had won the primary, which was, you know, which gave heartburn to a lot of family, friends, and even me on occasion, I was really hoping she would pick Senator Sanders because I thought that would have produced balance in our ticket and we would have won. Uh, I would have kept the energy up. I think everyone would have been happier with things. And that message wasn't heeded. And then we saw what happened in the general election. We won the popular vote and lost the election in a disaster. So we need to work together no matter how we define ourselves as Democrats or people that are left of the median political line. And, uh, and I'm willing to do that always. I tend to be very, very progressive on social and human issues and health issues, a little bit more moderate on economic issues, and willing to work with even conservative folks as long as they put people's uh, needs ahead of um, corporate interests. And lastly, what can folks do to get involved in your campaign and where can they find you online? Well, thank you for that. Uh, they should go to joshgreen.org and just see what I'm about. They should uh, friend or follow me on Facebook, Josh Green for Lieutenant Governor. Honestly, they can just send me a personal email. It's my whole name, Joshua Booth Green at yahoo.com. I'm happy to, to have people reach out. I, I'm still very... I read every email that I get, I answer my own phone, which I think every political person should, and I think it's good for people all across the country to be interested in Hawaii because I do think we can be good leaders on some issues that will be very interesting to them. We, just like California or Texas, will be one state that can pass an important piece of legislation and be counted as a, as a state, as, you know, as maybe state number six or seven or 10 or 15 on a major important progressive matter uh, for the whole country. And by doing that, we also create a, a nice bench for the national uh, team for the future. A lot of good people have come out of Hawaii, President Obama, and then we've seen some other terrific champions like Senator Inouye. A lot of people are seeing Senator Hirono uh, in the limelight right now taking on Kavanaugh. Senator Schatz has been fantastic on the environment. He's he's a you know a personal friend and I, so appreciate his his championing uh, that issue. So get in touch with us. Uh, needless to say, Hawaii always welcomes everyone to come and share our experience here. But from a political standpoint, just reach out and you'll get me directly. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. We wish you the best of luck on the campaign and we hope to have you on in November after you win. It would be a super honor to do that, and I'm always available no matter what, because I, I will fancy myself a, a physician policymaker no matter what, uh, and I want to share some of our novel solutions to solve chronic homelessness and deal with addiction with the whole country. So those kind of conversations are great, and I need other people's input to help me make these programs better. Okay, great. And we hope our listeners do reach out. Now, to said listeners, as always, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. 
To keep up to date with the Millennial Politics Podcast, make sure to subscribe on iTunes and tune into the Progressive Radio Network every week at 8 p.m. Eastern to hear our newest episode. Thanks for listening.